This episode of Safe Space Radio is brought to you by the Lerner Foundation and listeners like you. This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space Radio, a show about the subjects we would struggle with less if we could talk about them more. Today is the second show in our series on the Maine Wabanaki State Child Welfare Truth and Reconciliation Commission. I'll be talking with three Native women who work with Maine Wabanaki Reach, which is the group that convened the TRC. Maria Gerard is Penobscot and a historian. She's been involved in educating Maine citizens about Penobscot history and contemporary issues for nearly a decade, and currently works with Maine Wabanaki Reach as a health and wellness coordinator. Esther Atian is Passamaquoddy from Sibaig and serves as the co-director of the Maine Wabanaki Reach. Stephanie Bailey is Passamaquoddy and resides at Indian Township with her family. She's a community organizer with Reach and does volunteer work for people in her community. A Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which we refer to as the TRC, is a group with a mandate to investigate a significant social problem and make recommendations for addressing it. Here in Maine, leaders of the five Wapanaki tribes, together with Governor LePage, formally committed to the mandate of this commission, the first of its kind in the United States. It began in early 2013 and will give its recommendations in June of this year. The Maine Wabanaki TRC focuses on what has happened to Wabanaki children and families since 1978 after the passage of the Indian Child Welfare Act, which we'll be referring to as ICWA during this show. ICWA was passed to prevent the widespread practice of removing Indian children from their families and placing them with white families where they lost connection to their tribe, their identity, and their heritage. In fact, Native children were being removed from their families and their tribes at a rate 19 times higher than white children were being removed from their families. This was particularly devastating because it continued the history, going back to the late 19th century, of Native children being forcibly removed from their families and placed in boarding schools, whose guiding principle was to, quote, kill the Indian to save the man. Part one of this series laid out this history in painful and, at least for me, often surprising detail. Today, in part two of this series, we focus on the process at the heart of the TRC, in which everyone affected by these child welfare practices is invited to come forward and share their untold stories. I began our conversation by asking Esther Atien what kinds of stories the TRC is hearing. Basically, um, the commission is investigating what happened to Wabanaki children and families involved in the state child welfare system. So they're hearing from children who adults who were children and were taken at the time. They're hearing from people who lost their children to the child welfare system. They're hearing from grandparents who have lost their grandchildren. They're hearing from foster parents, foster siblings. On the other side, they're hearing from caseworkers who were involved in removing children, judges, those foster parents. Um, so the basic premise is everybody has a story to tell. Uh, there's a lot of care and attention taken to the emotional well-being of the person there's ceremony involved in the statement gathering. The, um, when they do statement gathering in the Wabanaki communities, the statement gatherer offers some tobacco, which is traditional. And all of the tissues that are used in the statement to dry any tears, uh, the, the statement provider has the option of letting us keep those tissues and we burn them in the sacred fire when we have ceremonies. So there's a lot of care and ceremony and attention taken. And... Um, during every statement, they also have an opportunity to give the commission any kind of concrete recommendations that they think they should implement or they should recommend. 
I'm really struck because for me as an individual clinician, um, when people are wanting to work through trauma or to tell me a story of something that was very traumatic, they're often really afraid that in doing so, it's going to stir up so much pain that it's going to actually make them feel worse for a while. Um, and I don't have an equivalent way of holding it in a community, in a kind of one-on-one office situation. And I'm curious to ask you, what feedback did you get from the people who spoke about the fallout for them after? Do you sense that the way it was held in such a sacred way and in such a communal way was helpful to them? The feedback that I've gotten so far is um, they, they feel like they've been heard and that something is going to be done. Um, you know, and, and I make sure to let them know that there's no guarantee that, you know, with their situation and stuff that something will be done with that, but, um, that we did hear them, you know, and I think that some, with the ones that I've sat with, um, that seems to be enough, um, because they did participate. I mean, there's some people that, that it's really hard to get them to participate because they feel like, um, we've we've said we've had people come in and say they're going to help and what's different this time so you know we get some of that um and and it's hard to work you know past that and to get people to trust and you know we got a lot of elders that don't trust so i have this is esther i have a lot of hope for when the commission releases its report in june and people see especially those that choose to have their stories uh, archived in a public accessible forum and they see that they, they've, they've taken the step and they broke the silence. And I, I mean, it's been very heartening this journey that we've been, we've taken. I mean, in 2008 is when we earnestly started to develop a TRC process and sitting in circle with elders and have them, you know, look at, look at us and say, thank you. We've been waiting for this for 40 years one elder told us we've been waiting for this this time to come where we can have this opportunity to start start having a voice and start healing. Um, gives gives me all the validation I need for all the work that we've done and continue to do. Stephanie, what do you want to add? That yes, I, I mean I haven't personally seen any um, real negative repercussion with any of the people that I've worked with um, when they've shared their truths, um, but I have seen that. It, it has helped them. They told me that it's lightened them, feeling like they've let it out and that, that somebody heard them. So, um, you know, people are hurting already anyway. The story that they hold inside is already there and it's already hurting them. So it's, you know, it's just reliving to get that out so that they can heal and not be owned by that, that past anymore. Right. Esther. The ICWA work group, the folks that started in 1999, when we first trained state caseworkers, we developed a video where we interviewed about 10 Wabanaki people who were in care prior to 1978. And when we interviewed them to get the consent forms and did the video, we didn't pay any attention to what retelling of that story did to them. And, they were, and it was, it was uh, a, a grave mistake and one that we have tried to rectify in this process by paying a lot of attention to that preparation and support of people. So, for instance, if, um, when the commission came to Indian Township, for example, and Stephanie was um, helping people 
she'd sit with them. Sometimes she'd be their support person. After they gave the statement, she'll check in with them. And they also facilitate healing circles that are offered on an ongoing basis so people have an, on, that opportunity to, to come and share. One thing we've learned is it's not the telling of the story that's causing the trauma. The trauma's already happening, and we've tried to um, really um, get people to change our mindset and our perspective about breaking the silence. Because we got scared along the way, and especially, you know, this idea of opening this can of worms. And we can't, we can't get people to talk about that. We'll start drinking and drugging and killing ourselves. And I remember somebody saying, you know, but we're already doing that. And silence isn't working. And we, you know, have to have faith that if we provide people with those opportunities in a safe space, <laughs> um, that they can begin that journey towards healing. But we also can't. We can't uh, guarantee that they're, they're not going to feel worse after. We can't guarantee that what they say in a circle, in a community, is going to stay there. Um, so it's it's been... It, when Stephanie was talking about people that provide those private statements, I believe the commission has collected, I want to say, 130 statements at least. And, and I know the ones that they've collected in Wabanaki communities the majority of them have, on the consent form, agreed and requested and wanted their statement to be made public, non-anonymous, after the commission is done. So if people are choosing, you know, they're, and they're sharing some very painful details and memories and stories of what has happened to them, and, and, they're, and say again, yeah, I know I've shared this, and it's really, I'm really afraid of what's going to happen, once it's out and once it is, but I want it public and not anonymous. And you ask them why, and it's because they don't want this to happen to anyone else again. You know, and we talk about our cultural genocide and our ways of knowing and being um, being exterminated, and that's evidence right there that they're not. They're still there because that's part of being a Wabanaki person is taking care of the next you know, generation. Before the TRC, how much silence was there within each community? Were these stories that people were telling to each other, or was it was the silence kind of a way of coping with the trauma that it was tried? You just you know, don't talk about it. You don't talk about those things. It's been my experience in my community. Maria, that's been my experience as well. Is that people just wouldn't talk about anything, and one. Um, real tangible benefit of the TRC, in my opinion, is the ability for people to be speaking freely about healing. It has opened our eyes to each other as you know individuals that all have um, stories and pasts that we may not even be aware of, and so it's, I think, um, made us a little bit more gentle with people. And uh, I see a lot of good things coming out of the TRC process for, for our communities. In my experience as a psychiatrist, which is obviously so different, but my experience is that silence is it becomes its own form of trauma in a way. Like the feeling of such deep aloneness when you're talking about, you know, finding out that other people share this experience, so profoundly helpful, but silence is so isolating and it so fosters the feeling of shame, like this is somehow something bad about me. And um, I'm curious if 
in people's statements if that was talked about, if the kind of the, the legacy or the burden of that sounds is something that also has emerged in this process. I, I want Stephanie to talk about that, but I just first want to say I haven't, I haven't been privy to people's private statements, but I've been present at all of the circles. And this notion of silence, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about people who are in the same family group who, haven't, who have had these experiences and they've never talked about them. So that silence becoming its own trauma is so true. And, and there's been, in some instances, you know, there's a fear that, well, if I speak out, then, you know, I can share my story, but I'm really sharing my sister's story and my brother's story because they were there. And there's a real fear of that and not wanting to, um, and to walk that line. A feeling of, like, if it airs my dirty laundry in a way, like, I didn't choose to out that. Right. Yeah. What were you going to say, Stephanie? Um, you know, in, in sharing time with people um, and sitting in with people that share their truths, um, I haven't really come across anybody that had um, shame in it. More, um, It's always more about people seem to be more concerned with how it's going to affect the people that are in their stories. That's what I, I've experienced a lot is they don't want to hurt their sister or they're afraid to bring up um, a name of somebody that was involved, even if it was a non-tribal person, because they don't want to hurt that person back. It's really weird how they were a victim, but yet they're more concerned with the the other people that are involved in their truth-telling. That's what I have seen most. It's It's been really eye-opening for me um, in understanding how our people are, even because we tend to be forgiving in an odd way, um, and we just hold this grief. Um, you know, we're sad a lot. Um, and I don't think people understand really what that is, but there's just, we're always been a gentle people. Um, this is Esther. I, along those lines, I, the word that keeps coming to me is compassion because I've seen in our communities, in our circles, that silence being broken and people saying, you know, in the same circle, they live in the same community and looking at each other and saying, I never knew that you felt that way too, or, and then that compassion. So I don't, I don't see a lot of shame. I don't think people really internalize that shame as much as I've seen in other communities, uh, uh, non-Native communities. Stephanie, you talked about grief, and um, I was reading the work of Maria Yellowhorse Braveheart. She and many others have written about the concept of intergenerational trauma, the kind of the ways that trauma gets passed down. And Maria, I'd like to ask you about, if you could tell me a little bit about what, what is intergenerational trauma and you know, how does it play itself out in, in maybe the Penobscot community that you've seen? Well, as you know, um, intergenerational trauma was a concept that was coined by Maria Yellowhorse Braveheart in the 1980s, I believe. Um, as she looked around her community and began to wonder why... Um, Indian people weren't living up to the quote-unquote American dream, why they always seemed to have such an exorbitant amount of issues and problems to have to overcome, that nothing seemed to be as easy for Native peoples as it was for non-Native peoples. So um, generations after generations after generations uh, hold on to this repeated and accumulative assaults against them as distinct cultural peoples, in this case, you know, Native Americans. And um, 
you know, the trauma that, for instance, our, our ancestors might have held around um, escaping the scalp proclamation, you know, the, we carry that in our bodies and we carry that from generation to generation. You know, I heard a recent story of a woman who said that um, whenever the police would come into the community with an unknown vehicle, people became afraid and people would hide their children. And she said that every time the police came onto the tribal reservations that mothers were hiding their children in the backs of closets. And to this day, every time she sees a police, um, she's terrified. And so um, the results of those repeated and accumulative traumas now are known to have very serious um, consequences on our stress, on our bodies, on our emotions, and that we still carry those forward. I was reading some of the work about intergenerational trauma, and they, they likened it to how uh, survivors of the Holocaust have carried that traumatic memory and how the survivor's children also felt affected. And I found this quote that I wanted to read, and I'd, I'd like to ask your response to it. So it said, Jews in Europe have not found an effective means of coping, integration, and ad adaptation. Many are in a stage of complete denial and stunted mourning of their losses. They feel a great need to control their emotions because they feared that if their intense emotions were given free reign, they might go insane. Survivors feared the uncontrollable rage locked within them. They feared they would be devoured by thoughts of avenging the deaths of their loved ones. This repression results in psychic numbing. And I'm curious, does that resonate for you and your experience in your communities? Do you, do you see what, what this author described as psychic numbing? The first thing that came to mind when you asked that question was um, surveys, health assessment surveys that were conducted in the tribal communities. And one of the questions in the survey um, was specifically about uh, intergenerational trauma. And it asked um, participants how often they thought about uh, the losses that had occurred, such as the loss of land or the loss of language. And there was a huge percent of people who said that they thought about that every day. Of course, I don't remember off the top of my head what that percentage was. Um, but then the, the following question was, um, how do you primarily feel when you think about this? And the number one response was anger. And so, you know, we have all these people walking around our, our community that are carrying that on a daily basis. And, um, you know, when you think about what anger does, you know, to you physically and mentally and, and how you live with that anger, um, that's, that's a big population. And one thing to note about the Holocaust, um, and just to put into perspective, um, the genocide of Native peoples, uh, the the genocide that happened right here in this continent was the, the largest genocide that has ever occurred on this planet. It was over 98% population depletion. And those statistics are the same, you know, here in Maine as any national trends. There used to be uh, 20 Wabanaki tribes here in Maine, distinct tribes, and now there's this five. And I think the, the biggest challenge and the biggest difference 
um, in these holocausts is that um, we're living in our, our homelands and still experiencing the same sorts of tactics, the same treatment. You know, it's still ongoing. We're still, every day there's an issue to deal with. And Be it's also the invisibility and that acknowledgement has not happened with Native people as it has happened with the Jews. You know, I know I, I was part of that health assessment survey, and I remember asking people those questions. And I, when people are, when you stop and think about it, yeah, they are angry. They, we got a lot to be angry about. And what do we do with it? You go to any gathering of Native people, and what do you hear more than anything? Laughter. You hear so much joy. You hear people laughing together and with each other and... Um, it's it's a complete contradiction to that. Would you say going into your mind or whatever like you said, nine. going crazy or whatever? Oh, the fear, <laughs> the fear that yeah. if, the, if the emotions were let out, that people might go and say, not that they would, but that the fear was there. Yeah, yeah. I I just yeah, it is every day, and it is. It's not. You can't really compare the two holocausts. It's so different, but it's acceptable to say that there was a Jewish holocaust. And I don't think it's even on people's minds that there was an American Indian Holocaust. So I want to talk about acknowledgement because so much of healing um, involves, you know, having a voice and being heard and having that truth be acknowledged. Is acknowledgement enough? When people talk about reconciliation, What what is the hope about what will really bring that about? For me personally, the best thing that could happen is that they would stop these tactics that they continue to carry out against Native peoples. You know, just in this day and age, Penobscot people are defending themselves against further territorial loss at the hands of the state of Maine government. Um, so we're engaged in a drawn-out legal battle. Uh, the state of Maine came up with the idea in 2012 that our ancestral reservation did not include the water. Now, Penobscot Nation is made up of over 200 islands in the Penobscot River, and all of a sudden they wanted to change the definition of our reservation to say that it did not include the water. So we're defending ourselves against our own government again. Passamaquoddy people are continuously fighting for their inherent right to fish. Um, that became very evident in the state around the Elver issue and really incited a lot of hostility and racism. And it's still happening. And that's the thing that I think is hardest for people to grasp is that it's, it's never stopped. It's not historical trauma. It's ongoing trauma. And the best thing that could happen would be for us to just stop. That makes sense. It's hard to heal from something that isn't over. And you can't do it if it's not. I mean, acknowledgement is a very important step, but I don't think it's enough, personally. I mean, I can't wait to see what the recommendations are. I, I have no idea. I want to know, you know, <laughs> what I... I'm not privy to the data that the commission has been collecting or what themes that they're seeing. So I'm very excited to see what that report is going to contain. Um, but when I think about systemic change, I, um, I think inevitably I, I always go back to people, to individuals, and um, that acknowledgement 
and I'm talking to, you know, I'm talking about white people now, that acknowledgement of what happened, that first acknowledgement, knowing the truth, accepting it, and then what are you going to do about it? You know, um, there was this, <clears throat> this Mi'kmaq woman named Barbara Lowe, I found out her name, and she had uh, quoted to someone else that, uh, in, in she was talking about the Canadian TRC, I think, and it's kind of like the same process, people sharing their stories and opening up and sharing that pain. And she said that without any movement toward, you know, past that is nothing but genocide porn. That's what she called genocide it. Genocide what did you say? Genocide porn. Porn. And that's, you know, I, that has stuck with me ever since I heard that because we need to give people that space to have their story. But if we just take what they're saying and it, it's like going to a bad movie, you know, going to a movie and crying and then you just leave, then what, what's it for? Just like these people sharing their stories because they think it's going to matter and it's going to mean something and they want something to change. And when I think about white people hearing this history, you know, and seeing pictures of the baby handcuffs that they had for children, you know, in boarding schools and knowing these horrible things happened, then, you know, I'm interested in what, okay, then what? You know, how do you reconcile with that? And what do you do in your own lives to leverage that privilege that you've inherited because of this to, to help repair and to help fix things and stop what's happening, first of all, and then to repair the damage that's already been done? And so for a white person, say, like me, who started out well-meaning but quite ignorant, and through l listening to you, and reading and learning, you know, I'm sitting here thinking, I want to do what you're asking. Are there more specific requests you have for, I mean, I hear you inviting me to use my white privilege to, you know, put pressure presumably on the government to work toward systemic change, to work toward reparations, to work to stop, you know, trying to take the water from the Penobscot Nation or for to work to increase, you know, Passamaquoddy fishing rights. So I can I can sense like the advocacy using using the power I have to work with the government and to educate myself around history so that I know the truth. Are there other more specific requests that you have of me and of people like me? I think number one is that education. I mean that is there are some people that have been educated and they're starting to learn about their white privilege and own their racism and help, but that you know, nothing happens without that education piece first, that knowing about what happened. And this TRC is, you know, creating that um, that common understanding so we can say this is what happened to Native children in child welfare. And this is just one area, child welfare. You know, there's many other areas of tribal state relations. So that, that that's the first step. Um, and to not only educate yourself but to educate other people. Um, and then Maria's going to say something. Maria, what else? Maine Wabanaki Reach has trainings for people who are interested in becoming allies with Wabanaki people. And these trainings are located in different areas of the state of Maine. Um, but all that information is on the Maine Wabanaki Reach website. And the allies become aware of the issues that are happening currently. And they're also... Um, willing to, to step up and, and be involved and um, be supportive in current issues that are affecting us today. So I would say that that's probably one of the best ways that a person could get engaged and learn how to be an ally. Are there responses from white people that you really don't want? 
Uh, don't try to pretend to be Indian if you're not. Don't be a culture vulture. Yes, culture vulture. <laughs> um, there seems I think don't ask a Native person to be responsible for your education. I've done a lot of educational outreach in the past, and um, that's the big thing is we joke about the word culture vulture, but a lot of time people will want to um, to take on some of our attributes you know they yeah they want to stroke our hair and wear our clothes and <laughs> not wear our clothes but wear you know dress similar or um when I went to the Wabanaki Confederacy in 2012 up in New Brunswick one of the elders said we don't want you to be us we just want you to walk with us <laughs> and I loved that description but um there there are a lot of do's and don'ts, I think, to be in an ally. And that's why um, I'm so glad that Maine Wabanaki Reach has that program because it does get exhausting sometimes. You know, sometimes people come at us with this savior mentality, which to us, you know, it may be well-meaning for them, but to us, you know, it's kind of insulting because we don't need anyone to save us. We need you to just, just stop doing what you're doing or to for you to affect your government because we have our governments, you know, we have our own nations and we're doing our things and we're perfectly capable of taking care of ourselves and making our own decisions, but the problem is so much of our time is wasted defending ourselves or trying to get out from under the thumb of the state government in so many different ways. Next week, in part three of our conversation, I'll be talking with Esther Atian and Stephanie Bailey about the impact of the TRC in Wabanaki communities and the work of healing. In the meantime, if you'd like to learn more about the TRC, you can visit mainwabanakireach.org and mainwabanakitrc.org. There you can find links to films and articles and events like the ally groups that Maria was just talking about. If you like the show and want to stay connected to these issues, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Safe Space Radio. And you can find us on the web at safespaceradio.com, where you can listen to all of our past shows, including last week's show about Wabanaki history. While you're there, please subscribe to our email list to find out about each week's new show as soon as it's released. My thanks to Gabe Graben for producing the show and to Jim Russell for being our editorial advisor. Coming up next is Speak Freely.